Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's do part two. But first, as always, we got shout-outs. That's right, we have shout-outs going out to Lionel, Sandy, Paige, Kosh, Sean, Deborah, Andrew, Tasha, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal Animal, Alicia, Derek, Becca, Jen, Elizabeth, Void, Tech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Eric, Brandon, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Loki, Carrie, Ezram, Robin, Will, Lauren, and Phil, Mangano, Lauren, Russell, Donald, April, Milldog, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, Dijon Bishop, Aloha, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scostin, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Aaron, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, Lawrence Strawn, hey howdy hi, Veronica, Autumn, J Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jaden, Ashy, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Juliana, Dan, Laura Pitts, and GamerFan. With special shout outs to Joe Teague and Stitch. All right, this one's actually going to be kind of a quick paranormal news. So for those of the people that don't like paranormal news, boy, howdy, is this one going to be for you. So let's head right on in to paranormal news. Ghost in demons that haunt the night. Strange objects fly through the sky. Shadow people are spending the night again. crap i love that one all right the first story in paranormal news alleged ufo sighting at skinwalker ranch brandon fugel's eyewitness account on jessup's journal if you guys don't know what uh, skinwalker ranch is you really should listen to every episode or watch tv or have anything to do with the paranormal but skinwalker ranch it's in utah supposedly cursed land supposedly uh radioactive land it's got a UFO that crashed, it's under the ground. They see UFOs all the time. There's there's skinwalkers. I mean, there's cryptids of all kinds that are seen there. It's really a cool place. I would love to go there. I'd love, absolutely love to interview the owner of Skinwalker Ranch, but, you know, that hasn't happened yet. But anyhow, so Skinwalker Ranch, legend, legend happens that... Uh, Supernatural activities occur on a piece of land surrounded by the Ute Indian Reservation in the Uten Basin of Utah. Brandon Fugel bought the land five years ago and brought a team of scientists to see if the legends were true. He says, I was surprised at how open he was as he told me the first six months of owning it. I really saw nothing myself that would lead me to believe there was anything unusual. But that all changed. I had with multiple witnesses with me on an occasion where we saw what can only be described as an unidentified flying object, a craft 40 to 50 foot long silver disc hovering right above the mesa, right in front of us. This wasn't just a blinking light in the sky or something that was a little bit ambiguous. This was a solid object that appeared out of nowhere, could move in the blink of an eye, and over a 20 second period perform maneuvers that I believe defy any propulsion physics that we're acquainted with. Uh, let's see. You know what? That's about it for this part of the story. I'm really going to try and cruise through paranormal news. In case you haven't figured it out, since this is a part two, I really don't want to jam too much paranormal news into a part two. I'm going to try and cruise through, get you right into the actual content as quick as possible. Some people like paranormal news. Some people hate it. I don't care. I do it all, you know, I'll do it as much or as little as I want. And in this one, I'm just going to do a little bit of it. 
Alrighty, up next in paranormal news. Foul mouth phantoms, pint spilling poltergeists, why are ghosts suddenly behaving so badly? Somerset's Quantic Hills are being haunted by a very rude woman in white, but that's just the tip of an otherworldly iceberg. The name, the cursing ghost, age dates back to 1789, appearance wraith-like, white, and abusive. Where do these appearances take place? In the Quantic Hills of Somerset, near a beauty spot called Dead Woman's Ditch. Who's in charge of naming the beauties of, of Somerset? Because it might be time for some fresh thinking. This is one is said to have been named after a murder that took place in the 18th century. Now, the victim, some believe, still haunts this place. So what happens here exactly? Well, a ghostly vision of a woman in white accosts visiting walkers. And the, this is weird. It's like, the way it's written, it's, it's like interviewer, than the person that's answering the question. But they don't say who the interviewer is. They don't say who the person answering the question is. I really think it's just the way that this the person that wrote this article decided to do it. Very interviewee, but it doesn't really work. Um, what happens exactly? Well, there's a ghost of a vision of a woman in white across visiting walkers and puts curses on them. Well, actually, it just tells them to fuck off. How terrifying and offensive. It first happened in 2020. According to contemporary reports in the Bristol Post, the potty mouth spook had been identified by an outfit called Ghost Hunters Southwest. Now, after a two-year hiatus, the ghost is back, the interviewer says, and just as angry? Still very rude, apparently. Are ghosts getting more unpleasant generally? Perhaps this week's CCTV footage emerged allegedly showing a poltergeist pushing a full pine off the table at the oft-haunted Swan Hill in Dunstable, Bedfordshire. And there's also been some ghostly hair pulling at the Shrubbery Hotel in Ilminster, Somerset. They ask, but is the woman in white British, Britain's only swearing ghost? Britain's only swearing ghost? The answer, apparently not. Last month, there were, there were reports of a foul-mouthed specter at the Adelphi in Liverpool, supposedly the UK's most haunted hotel. I really want to stay at that hotel, by the way. Uh, this follows another spate of paranormal cussing on the same site last year. The interviewer asks, so it's kind of like an actual thing that they're swearing ghosts? And the person says, well, no, of course it isn't. What do the people around Dead Woman's Ditch think about the sightings? For the most part, they're less impressed. It sounds a bit Scooby-Doo to me, said one person. Uh, let's see, anyone checked out the movements of the caretaker? Uh, I get it, meddling kids, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's skip on to the good stuff. Uh, what's with all the ghost sightings lately in the area? Have we become more credulous of late? The answer is it seems we have. Reports of paranormal activity have rocketed in the last two years as part of a general increase in, quote, magical thinking, conspiracies and superstitions, etc. See, now, Kurt here, I disagree with that. I don't think there is a general increase in magical thinking, definitely in conspiracies. I'll give them that one, but that has nothing to do with a swearing ghost. I don't think there's a general increase in superstitions either. I think people are more accepted of, uh, you know, the paranormal. Sure, I get that. Like, I can get behind that. But I don't believe that there's an increase in magical thinking. And the answer is, it's most likely caused by anxiety over COVID and the stress associated with lockdowns and prolonged isolation. Again, I'm going to say, I don't know about that. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there were more reports of UFOs and ghosts and the paranormal, but that's because people are stuck at home. If there's going to be paranormal activity wherever they're, you know, trapped at, they're more likely to see it because they're trapped there. And I'm not going to read the last two lines because it's don't do say I ain't afraid of no ghost. Don't say that's some spooky shit there. I read it. It's stupid. I just like the idea of there being just this like foul mouthed ghost cruising through the UK because, you know, when people see a woman in white ghost, it's usually bad. It's like a bad omen. But it's not a, like, oh, shit, there's a woman in white. And then she just runs up to you and goes, fuck off, then runs away. Like, I like that woman in white. Good on her. I'm all about that. Alrighty, as I said, I wanted to make this one a quick paranormal news. I wanted to be, because, again, it's a part two to an, another episode. Um, but let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Okay, before we get into this week's episode, well, we're back, Paranormal Almanac, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can check us out on patreon.com slash Paranormal Almanac. You can go to storeenvy.com for all your patron uh, or your paranormal, paranormal Almanac needs. Uh, you can email me any of your personal paranormal stories at paranormalalmanac at gmail.com, yada, yada, yada. All that stuff's out of the way. Okay, before we get into this, this week's episode, though, I had an encounter that I have to share with you guys because I loved every minute of it. So I went to go get some, um, to get a bagel. I don't know why I say some bagels. Well, I got two bagels. I'm not going to lie. Why would I lie about that? I got two bagels. It was a Saturday. I wanted a bagel, so I went and got two. Um, so I went to this uh, place by my house for bagels, and I'm standing in line, and I'm wearing my Paranormal Almanac uh, denim jacket, which if you guys don't know it, if you guys don't watch the live shows, I've got this uh, Levi denim jacket that has just a bunch of patches all over it. On the back, it's got a ginormous patch that says, like, Sasquatch something or other. It looks like a motorcycle patch. It's got patches about, like, you know, the Flatwood Monsters and Skinwalker Ranch and, you know, Loch Ness and the Yeti and the official Don't Effing Shoot Bigfoot Paranormal Almanac patch that you guys can get over on Etsy, 8-Bit Spock. She does some fantastic patches. If you guys like uh, Joe Bob Briggs, she's got some of those as well. Just some amazing patches. You should definitely check her out. But anyhow, so I'm wearing my jacket. It's got, you know, Mothman on the front. It's got buttons that are all, it's all crypto related, all all paranormal related. So I'm, I'm just standing there in line wearing my jacket, hanging out. And this guy walks up to me. And he goes, oh, man, I love that jacket, man. I love those patches. And I turn around, and it's like this old, like, hippie guy. You could tell like he was a hippie back in the day. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. And I, you know, turn back around, and he goes, you know, I saw a Sasquatch. I went, whoa, what? Turned back around. I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, tell me all about it. And I tried to hit record on my phone. I said, do you mind if I record it? He's like, I don't care. But it was so loud in the... Noah's bagels, Western's bagel, whatever it was, that it it didn't, it's not worth, I, I, I was like, all right, this isn't working. It's too loud. But here's his story. Freaking loved it. He said that when he was about 14, so this is the, the mid to late 70s, he's about 14. He was living up in Washington, over by Walla Walla, Washington, he said was the closest big city. And he lived on a ranch with his dad and his whole family. And he said that uh, they would go out and do deer shooting and, and, you know, hunting and whatnot. So he's out with his dad one time. He's 14, hunting. They went over by these this kind of like wild apple orchard that was over by the ranch. So he's like, all right. His dad was like, this is perfect. We're going to, you know, the deer come up. They get the apples. We're going to shoot them. We're going to have some deer. we have some venison. It'll be great. So he's like, all right, cool. What do we do? He's like, well, I want you to stay right here. I'm going to go over on this side of the, of the uh, apple orchard. And I'm going to stand right here. That way we have a better line of sight. We can't, you know, we're not going to shoot each other, but we have a better line of sight. We can hit some deer. And he's like, perfect. This sounds awesome. So he said, you know, they were, they got all set up and he said, you know, first light, we're really going to go hunting. But, um, they start to hear some stuff out in the edge of the, of the apple orchard gets to be nighttime. Dad and him are now over by the campfire. And, uh, he says that, he started hearing the howling, the typical howling that you hear on those Sasquatch TV shows. And he said it was, he's immediately, a hair on the back of his neck stood up, like a hair in his arm stood up. He was like, it was terrifying. And he could hear branches being broken not too far from where they were. He said it was very close. He was actually really freaked out. And his dad was like, you know, I think that it's got to be a coyote, but I've never heard them make that kind of sound, but that's what it's got to be. And then they heard more branches breaking and then they heard rocks. And he's like, he was freaking out and he's like, what the hell is happening? So that's happening all overnight. First light, they go to investigate. And he says that the branches, like all of the apples, 10 feet up and higher are gone. And all these branches are broken. The tops of trees are broken off. And he said, but the weird thing was there wasn't one footprint no hoof prints no deer prints no nothing prints no regular human footprints no big footprints no bear track nothing he said even though it was slightly muddy there was absolutely nothing so as him him and his dad are walking around and his dad's like all right i don't get it there should be tracks there should be a lot of tracks there should be definitely some deer tracks but it was dead silent he said that the 
the whole woods just went completely dead silent. And his dad stopped and went, do you hear that? And, and he was like, yeah, I don't hear anything. And his dad's like, I don't either. Something's nearby that's spooking everything. Get close to me. So they got close together. And he said he could hear the growling and the grunting and the stuff and the trees breaking. But this time, a little bit farther in the distance, whatever it was, he thinks, camped by them. And then at sunlight started to walk away from them. And he said, I've heard, I've seen bear, I've seen coyotes, I've seen everything you can think of up there. It was nothing that he had ever seen. And then he said, uh, that was the first time he saw him. He said one of his friends around that same time, late 70s, early 80s, actually saw one through his hunting rifle scope and shot at it. He thinks he hit it, but it didn't like even flinch. So first of all, pause right here. Don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. And I did tell him that. I was like, look at the patch. And he's like, oh, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. But he said that he's, his friend thought that he hit the Bigfoot. And they went and checked, and there was no blood on the ground. There was no nothing. They never found what it was. There were some in, in, uh, indentations in the ground for, for the footprints, but no, like, Sasquatch prints. That's what they were, you know, expecting to see. And he said the only other time that he had ever saw them was there is also a... I can't remember if he said pond or if he said lake by there, body of water by there. And he said that he was out on the boat. And that's what they did sometimes. They just kind of, you know, put the boat out in the middle of, of the lake and dropped to the, the anchor and just drank and basically got high and partied. And then, you know, the next morning they bring the boat back basically to the edge. And he said that they heard splashing around in the waters all night long. Again, couldn't see anything. Even with the flashlights, they couldn't find out what was making the, the water splashing. But he thinks, well, he swore to me. He goes, man, I tell you, he's like, hey, man, I tell you, Bigfoot, they eat seafood, man. I know they were eating the the seafood and the fish and the crawdads and everything that was in there. This guy was a trip. But he said, without it, he's like, hand hand to God, he had Bigfoot encounters. His friend saw one through the hunting scope and shot it. Well, thought he shot it. Might have missed. But I thought that was a pretty cool story. And I was like, I got to share that with you guys. Like I said, I was hoping that I could get him him actually telling the story to record it, but uh, it was just too loud. But I thought it was pretty cool, so I wanted to share that one. Anyhow, there's your little bonus Bigfoot for this episode. But we are back to do part two of UFO Monuments, not Bigfoot. Now, hopefully you've listened. You know you know what? I was going to say hopefully you've listened to part one, but no. If you haven't figured out from the title that there's a part one and you chose to listen to this one first, then you know what? That's on you. I can't tell you how to podcast listen. You don't need part one to understand what's happening. This entire episode is about places that commemorate UFOs. Boom. See, you're all caught up. So you don't need to listen to part one. I mean, I think you should, but you don't need to listen to them in order, basically. So let's go to the first location. Now, up first, we go to Warminster in England. And we go back to Christmas Day in 1964. I'll be honest, I didn't know of this story Prior to doing the research, not for this episode, I had this I had this story saved for another episode, you know, forever ago. I just never have gotten around to this story. But I'll say up until about a year ago, maybe two years ago, when I started doing this podcast, I'd never heard this story. And it's a really crazy cool story. Anyhow, it's Warminster, it's in England, Christmas Day, 1964, when Mildred Head awoke early in the morning to, well, as she described it to a journalist shortly after the encounter, she said... At 1.25 a.m., she had, quote, come alive with strange lashings at the roof. It sounded like twigs brushing against the tiles and got louder and louder until it reverberated like giant hailstones. So she got out of bed. She went to look out the window, but said she couldn't see or didn't see anything. Now, I add both of those because it kind of changes what she meant, you know, depending on where you get your info. Some say she looked out the window and couldn't see anything. Some say she looked out the window and didn't see anything. So I'm adding them both for you guys. Now, even though she didn't see anything, basically, she definitely heard something, though. She said that she heard a humming sound that grew louder before fading to what she called a faint whisper. Now, cut to a few hours later, still early in the morning, six soldiers, I'm sorry, not six soldiers, nearby soldiers at Nook Camp Army Base were awoken to a chimney stack from the main block ripped from the rooftop 
then scattered across the whole camp. Getting weirder. So then at 6.30 a.m., another couple witnesses, the Rumps, Roger and his wife, were awoken by a similar noise. Now, they described it to a journalist right after it happened as sounding like, quote, the 5,000 tiles on our roof being ripped off and then put back on again with an enormous clatter. Still not done, though. Because right around that same time, Marjorie Bai was walking to church. So again, about 6.30 a.m., Christmas morning. Marjorie Bai was walking to church when she was thrown to the ground by the force of, quote, savage sound waves. Now, she said it sounded like cackling or like branches being pulled over gravel. It keeps going until more than 30 people reported hearing strange noises that Christmas morning. So, yeah, either, you know, like Santa was drunk and rowdy or something else entirely was happening, but it still doesn't end there. Cut to Warminster. That's not really a cut sound. That's a time. That's a terrible cut sound. Cut to Warminster. That's right. I haven't even gotten to the town that this story is named after yet. February 1965, two months after that crazy Christmas morning, an entire flock of pigeons suddenly dies. Now, I will say, some people think that this actually happened in April, but from what I can figure out, I think there were actually two separate instances of pigeons dying, one in April and this one in February in Warminster. There were also reports of large numbers of rodents dying instantly and some even having puncture wounds, but take that last one with a grain of salt because that one was only reported by one man and the local said, at that time, they said, yeah, he's not the most reliable witness. Okay, that was February. Now let's go to March, where at least three families heard loud noises coming from above their houses, their roofs and windows shaking violently, then comes the big one in June, when a Warminster resident, actually not just one, multiple Warminster residents reported UFOs. That's right, plural, UFOs. Now, these UFOs were reported to look like cigar-shaped UFOs with blinking lights or twin red-hot pokers hanging downwards, one on top of the other with the black space in between. That's very weird. That was also reported, plus... Flying saucers, the typical UFOs. So it runs the gambit of UFOs. Now, some witnesses even said that their cars stopped working and wouldn't turn back on after seeing a UFO. Others reported that their animals responded oddly. In particular, dogs seem to be heavily affected by either the sound waves or the UFOs themselves. Then, June 3rd, 1965, we're still moving. Several people reported seeing a large cigar-shaped cigar-shaped craft in the sky. Now, this sighting was reported by a family in, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm so sorry, Haydesbury, which is a town near Warminster. This was later verified by more than a dozen people in Shearwater, also by Warminster. Then, August 17th, 1965, a loud boom was reported. Now, I don't mean like a, you know, like someone like dropping something kind of loud boom or a firecracker going off. No, I'm talking one similar to that of a large detonation. One so loud, it shook houses in the neighborhood of Borum Fields. Now, residents recalled the noise making them all collectively look outside, where one witness even described, quote, a monstrous orange flame was seen in the sky. Crackling and hissing. Still not done. Ten days later, August 27th, 1965, a town hall meeting was called in Warminster so that the residents of the town could meet with authorities to discuss this continuing encounter, phenomena, whatever you want to call it. By this time, they had nicknamed it the Warminster Thing, the local press had anyway. Now, the town, town hall was recorded for national coverage And it was mostly ended up being just an hour-long session of witnesses describing what they had seen. 
They thought that one or two people would come forward, but for over an hour, witnesses came forward to tell what they had seen from this Warminster thing. Then, October 1967, two years later, two police officers report seeing an odd-shaped aircraft over the town of Devon, which is a couple hours away from Warminster, but they said it didn't look like any aircraft they had ever seen. All right, I'm going to take a, a, a different, I'm going to do something different for this episode. I'm actually read just a little bit from a book about the incident. It's called, it in, it's called In Alien Heat, The Warminster Mystery Revisited. Let's see, there, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read a couple of passages. Um, so going back to the rumps that I talked about earlier, they said that their story was almost identical to Marjorie Buys but that um, Mr. Rump was a, heard a clattering kind of noise. Mrs. By was pinned and numbed by the sounds. So she wasn't just knocked over. She was actually pinned to the ground. Mr. Rump said he was able to sit bolt upright in bed and listen. Then uh, four more instances happened at that same time. There's a person named Shuttlewood who says, Every few days, I learned of roofs bombarded by aeronautical amblings of the thing and apparently a malevolent mood. So, yeah, he definitely liked to you know, make it a little bit flowery. But he said by August of 1965, there had been at least 49 witnesses to the sounds. Eric Payne said that 11 p.m. on March 28, 1965, he was walking down a dark, foggy, quiet country road when he heard a sound, he described to similar to the sound of wind in a telegraph wire. I don't really know what that sounds like. Uh, the sound increased in intensity, however, and he was pushed and held down by, quote, a tremendous racket, like a gigantic tin can with huge nuts and bolts inside it rattling over your head. He said he heard a shrill whining and buzzing, which nearly drove me mad. He reports that his head was pushed back from side to side. I might as well have been left... I might as well have left my arms and legs at home for all the use they were. I simply could not stop this tremendous downward pressure. I crawled around in the road for a bit and then sank to my knees on the grassy verge. And he just keeps going on and on like this. I, I can keep going. I'm not going to read an entire book to you, but it just keeps going on. The Warminster Journal, in December of 1965, reports this happening again because it happened in 1964. The report of another event happened to Mr. David Holden. Holton. He reported that a flock of pigeons appeared to have been killed by the sound on April 11th, 1964. Um, but again, they, you know, I think there were two instances for that. Uh, they thought it was a poltergeist, ghost, or supernatural before someone actually spotted the whole UFO kind of thing, which I thought that was kind of interesting, too, is that they thought it was going to be a ghost, or demon, or poltergeist, or whatever. But the first recorded UFO sighting was around May 19th of 1965. Hilda Hebdige informed, her, informed him that three times during the week she saw unusual objects in the sky. She first related these sightings to the Fleet Street UFO group who passed the information to Shuttlewood. Oh, I get it. So she passed it to the local UFO group who passed it to, I'm assuming, this, this person that wrote the article back in the day. From the point of the point of view of ufological contamination, it's interesting to note the reference to the Fleet Street UFO group. Either a UFO group are already poking their noses in and contaminating the local culture. I don't know. That's bullshit. He's trying to say that there wouldn't have been any sightings of a UFO if it weren't for a UFO group in the town. No, I call bullshit to that. She described it as being a bright, brightly glowing cigar-shaped object. It uh, remained motionless over the south of Warminster for almost a half an hour. Her husband, their three children, and a visitor also observed the UFO. So, yeah, I mean, there was definitely legit UFOs. All right, that's about all I'm going to read from this book. But it's, like I said, this story is crazy, and it's not even done yet. So, let's continue. Let's, let's keep going. So, whatever was happening with these UFOs, they seem to be the cause... And they seem to be using sound to damage buildings, kill birds, push people down and hold them down. Newspapers around the world wrote about these instances, and people from all over came to see the UFOs. How many? Well, at the time, the newspaper said over 8,000 people 
descended to the small town by August to try and see the UFOs. And they said that these people were causing all kinds of ruckus and the UFOs weren't helping with the ruckus either. Now it didn't end there either. People reported more and more UFOs or some said a ball of crimson light in the sky or a terrible droning sound that the sound was so powerful. It actually made the witnesses floor and bed shake Then a year later in 1966, the BBC film Pie in the Sky, which was a documentary about the UFOs, the sightings basically lasted until the early 70s before fading away. All right, I'm going to read a bit of paranormal news right in the center of this um, edition because it's about the Warminster thing. UK town invaded by UFOs and eerie noises that killed flocks of birds and stopped cars. It stopped cars in their tracks, killed birds, terrified children. It sparked reports of strange humming sounds, tremors, lights, crop circles, UFOs, and even alien abductions. So just what did happen in a small, leafy Wiltshire town? 50 years on, and the people of Warminster still want answers over the mysterious outbreak of UFO sightings that propelled the country town in the southwest of England onto the national stage in the 60s. The Warminster Thing case is one of the most strangest cases of mass paranormal sightings Registered in the UK. Uh, let's see. I don't want to have to read. I read most of this to you. I did like the fact that, they, that this article had a uh, front page about it. It says, Warminster gets ready for invasion. And there's a really bad photo of a UFO, that a uh, flying saucer that a guy took from Warminster. Most of the sightings were around the Cradle Hill and Clay Hill area, surrounding the town next to military land on the edge of Salisbury Plain. Claims of paranormal activity in Warminster go back to the 50s. Uh, Not really. I'll have more on that in a second. But it was a sudden flood of reports around Christmas 1965 that led to a public meeting held in the town hall. And it just keeps going. But the point is, uh, let me get back to the story, really, because it's not done yet. It goes on and on and on. But um, anyhow, get this. That article just said the 50s. Not so much. Some experts on the Warminster thing say that the reports of odd sounds in the area go back as far as the 30s, that there's actual newspaper articles about strange sounds in the area. Again, in the 30s and the 40s articles, they're saying it's, you know, supernatural or maybe having to do with Stonehenge because Warminster's kind of by Stonehenge. Some of the skeptics say, now there you go, that article just said it. It's right by a military base, the military base is obviously to blame. Okay, what do we have 50, 60 years later that could do the things that this is describing? Nothing is the answer. All right, but to get back to this, why it's on this episode, in 2015, a conference was held in Warminster to mark the 50th anniversary of the original sightings. So a large, and I mean large, concrete wall had a mural painted on it to commemorate the thing done by, quote, a secret artist. Eh, I think it's fun. All right, the artwork is on on the old police station wall by the Information Center. George Ritz from the uh, Warminster Information Center said, the mural has attracted a lot of attention. People are already taking lots of pictures. And that's what we want them all to do. Come along and stand in the beam. Do selfies and get, get it all on Facebook. Leslie Blaine, also from the Information Center, said it had taken eight months to plan and organize the mural. She said it's a secret as to who actually did the painting. He said he's still not finished, so you might be able to catch him in action. He said he's going to add some other elements. There's going to be some glow-in-the-dark paint, so over the day when it's sunny, the wall will heat up, and at night, the picture will glow. See what I'm saying? This episode starts with the bang. That is an amazing story that doesn't just happen once, like one night, or even one week. It happened for years. Some experts say for 40 years, for 40 years, something has been happening in the town of Warminster. I don't think, I don't think the military base explains any of it. I think it is a very bizarre UFO encounter that is very unique to Warminster. All right, let's get on to Let's keep moving on. The next one is another famous one, like a real famous one, one that I've talked about before. And I'm only going to give you the briefest of backstories on it. It happened in Pascagoula, 
on October 11, 1973. And it happened to Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson. Now, he and Hickson were fishing on the Pascagoula River when they saw a brightly lit flying object. He said three beings took them aboard the craft, examined them, then returned them before disappearing. It's a great story. It really is. But for those faithful listeners, I don't want to rehash every old story that I've ever told. So find that episode after this one. Give it a listen because I really deep dive the Pascagoula um, UFO encounter. It's a great story. But anyhow, for this episode, on Saturday, it doesn't say when, what's Saturday. I think it was 2019. The city of Pascagoula commemorated the story with a historical marker. Marker. The dedication took place next to the Lighthouse Park Boat Launches, according to a city news release. So yeah, you can head on over to the Pascagoula River, find the Lighthouse Park Boat Launches, and you will see right there a historical marker about one of the craziest UFO abduction stories that I've ever heard or that I've ever told. Alrighty, let's keep moving on. For the next one, let's go to Pennsylvania. We're on October, nope, sorry, lies. On November 9th, 1974, at approximately 7 p.m., three teenage boys, there were 14-year-old Robert Gillette Jr. and his two friends, reported to the Carbondale police that they had saw or witnessed a glowing airborne object or a red whirring ball They saw it fly. It went over the Salem Mountains. It was traveling east to west and very rapidly before it started to go down and it actually crashed into a silt pond. It descended and crashed into the Russell Park Pond, in case you're familiar with the area. So if you're near Carbondale, Pennsylvania, hopefully you know what silt pond, hopefully you know what Russell Park. But anyhow, so word gets out. And a crowd of about 1,500 people actually rushed down to the pond hoping to see this crashed UFO. Now, the police thought it might have been like a small aircraft or something, so planes and helicopters were dispatched, and they were flying low overhead, kind of searching for wreckage. A green-tinged glowing, or green-tinged glow, I should say, illuminated the pond itself for over nine hours. So something was down there, but after two days, a diver emerged from the pond's silty waters with only an old railroad lantern. That's right, that green-tinged glow was from an old railroad lantern. Or was it? Because another witness, Kay Pope, who was 15 at the time, and there, she's now 58, says that she remembers riding her bicycle to Russell Park area, and she saw it cordoned off by the military. But she also saw what appeared to be something large being removed from the pond. We always rode our bikes up there, she said, who now lives in some other town. I saw a big flatbed truck on the road with something huge on it that it was covered. And there were a lot of people in military uniforms surrounding it. All right, let's get back to Robert Gillette, the original witness I told you about. He said... Why would you call in the people that were called in and the heavy machinery that were called in to take a lantern out of a pond? It just doesn't make sense. I think something definitely happened there. He said, my girlfriend broke up with me, so I was in a bad mood. I I just told them what they wanted to hear, that it was a lantern, but it wasn't a lantern. Something was pulled out of that pond. He goes on to say that he doesn't think it's an alien. He says, I don't think it's aliens, though. Some people do. I never called it a UFO. The official people did. I think it was a Soviet satellite, but who knows? That's what he says, the original witness to the, to the object. Look, whatever it was, a satellite, a UFO, an old railroad lantern, I don't buy that either. It definitely made an impression on the town, and a marker number was erected by the Carbondale Historical Society. Now, this historical marker is listed in the topic list, Air and Space, a significant historical month for this entry, May 2004. So, if you want to go and see this, basically they set it up on 2004. It's at the intersection of Main Street, that's Business US 6, and 8th Avenue on the right when traveling south on Main Street. They say that the marker is at or near this address, 
60th, or sorry, 60 South Main Street, Carbondale, Pennsylvania. So again, if you're in the area, go check it out. Go take a photo with it. All right, that brings us to the next one. Now this one, this one is just about as big, if not bigger than Roswell, who, spoiler, will be on this episode at the very end in a small little brief mention. But this story, it's a mile marker that commemorates Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. This is the case that basically defined what a UFO abduction was, what could happen with hypnotic regression, all that kind of stuff. Tons of books, podcasts, TV shows, even a few movies have been made about this case. I've done an episode about them. But here's their story, as brief as I can make it and still do it justice. It's going to get a lot more detailed than the Pascagoula one because, again, this is the most, this is the UFO abduction case. It really is. So I didn't want to go like, Betty and Barney Hill were abducted. Anyhow, the marker's at blah, blah, blah. No. Here's a slightly but not really abbreviated story of what happened. Even if you've heard the story a million times, I'd say don't skip ahead because even though it's a truncated version, there is a ton of information, some of which you might not know. So Betty and Barney Hill, September 19th, 1961, it's 10.30 p.m. They're out driving on a rural road coming back from Portsmouth from a vacation in Niagara Falls and Montreal, Canada. They said they hadn't seen a car for some, like for miles, basically. It's been quite some time. They hadn't seen a car, rural road, 1030 at night. And they noticed a light that kind of seems to be following them. First, they kind of brush it off. He says, ah, it's a star. And Betty's like, no, she thought it was maybe, maybe it was a falling star. Except she said it seemed to be moving upwards, not falling. So Betty keeps an eye on it for even longer, a couple miles later, she said the light was getting bigger and she begged Barney to pull over so he could get a closer look at it. Plus, she said, hey, you know what? It's time to walk their dog, Delcy, so let's pull over. So Barney stops at a picnic area just south of Twin Mountain. Betty gets out their binoculars, was watching the light. She said she noticed an odd-shaped craft with flashing multicolored lights and said it has to be a flying saucer. For you skeptics, I will say that yes, Betty's sister did have a UFO, like she saw, Betty's sister saw UFO prior to this incident. That's why Betty was so quick to say it's got to be a flying saucer. There's a lot of skeptics to say, why would you jump to that conclusion immediately, especially in 1961? Well, that's why. So I'm throwing that in there for you skeptics. So she said, you know, I think it's a flying saucer. And uh, he's, he's, so she hands the, the, the uh, binoculars over to Barney. Barney grabs the binoculars and goes, now it's got to be a commercial airliner, possibly traveling low to Vermont, like landing in Vermont, until the UFO abruptly turned directions as he was watching it through the binoculars. It immediately descended and started coming towards them. He said, later on, he said, this object that was a plane was not a plane. That line right there gets misquoted all the time where people are like, he said it was a plane. No, he didn't. What he said was this object that was a plane, because that's what he thought it was, was not a plane. So they quickly get back in the car and they start driving at first going slow so they can keep an eye on the UFO and, and then, you know, slowly getting up to speed. And they said at one point, the UFO actually passed over a restaurant and signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain. Betty later said it was at least 40 feet long and rotating. It was a saucer. Now, they both noted that the UFO was completely silent and it seemed to move erratically. They said it wasn't very smoothly moving like a plane or a helicopter would. It was kind of like bouncing back and forth as it went which I think is kind of odd because that's what the, or interesting, not odd, because that's what those Tic Tac UFOs do. If you ever watch the Tic Tacs, they never seem to be just like smoothly flying. They're out, they're kind of wobbling like a gyro almost, like a gyroscope. Uh, but anyhow, 
Now this went on for a little bit and then the UFO descended rapidly right towards them. Barney got so freaked out he actually slammed on the brakes in the middle of the deserted highway and parked. They said the UFO hovered 80 to 100 feet over them and quote, filled the entire view in the windshield. To give you an idea, this is a 1957 Chevy, I believe. It's a big windshield. That's a huge statement that it filled their entire view. So Barney gets out of the car. He gets the binoculars again. He said, I had my pistol in my pocket and I wanted to get a closer look. So he felt kind of safe. Now he saw through the binoculars, eight to 11 humanoid figures looking out of the UFOs windows, the portholes, whatever you want to call them. He said one figure seemed to tell him to stay where you are and keep looking. So, Oh, this is, this is what he quoted. He said, red lights on what appeared to be bat wing fins began to telescope out of the sides of the craft and a long structure descended from the bottom of the craft. The silent craft approached to what they figure, uh, what Barney estimated anyway, to be within 50 to 80 feet overhead and 300 feet away. The UFO gets closer and closer. Barney panics, rightfully so. He runs back to the car. He said, I thought they were going to capture us. So he takes off in the car. They start booking again. And he, he tells Betty, you know, keep an eye on the UFO. So she rolls down the window and looks straight up. And there it is. Almost immediately, the Hills heard a rhythmic series of beepings or buzzing sounds, which they said seemed to bounce off the truck the trunk of their vehicle, which is important later. So the car vibrates. They have tingling sensations passing, passing through their bodies like electricity. Here's just a small bit from the report. The Hills said that they had experienced the onset of an altered state of consciousness that left their minds dulled. A second series of beeping or buzzing sounds returned the couple to full consciousness. They found that they had traveled nearly 35 miles south but had only a vague, spotty memory of this section of the road. They recalled making a sudden, sharp, unplanned turn, encountering a roadblock, and observing a fiery orb in the road. So, boom. It's over. No more UFO above them. You know, they're kind of freaked out, rightfully so. They drive home, and they said they both felt dirty. Not scared, not freaked out. Dirty. They started acting kind of strange. Betty insisted that their luggage be kept near the back door rather than in the main part of the house. Uh, they both noticed that their watches stopped. They would never work again. Barney said that the leather strap for the binoculars were torn, though he couldn't remember tearing it. He said that the toes of both of their shoes were scraped up and scuffed up. And Barney said he was compelled to examine his genitals in the bathroom, though he found nothing unusual. He felt compelled to do it. They both took long showers. Um, they thought they were removing contamination. That's why they felt dirty. They each drew a picture of what they observed, and they both drew the same thing. So they had a, a restless night's sleep. They, they slept for a few hours. It says that Betty woke up and placed the shoes and clothing that she had worn during the drive into the closet. She noticed that the dress was torn at the hem, the zipper, and the lining, though. So later... She gets the items from her closet and she notices that's when she notices on this purple dress that she had, there's a pinkish powder all over the dress. So she hangs the dress on the clothesline and she said, oh, good. The pink powder kind of blew away. But she noticed that, you know, the dress still torn and everything. She's like, you know, it's it's not worth saving. I'm going to throw it away. Thankfully, though, she changed her mind and took the dress and hung it back up in her closet. Fun fact, since then... Five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analysis on the dress. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but here's the analysis. More of the substance is on the exterior surface of the dress than on the interior for swaths one and two. The evidence shows the substance originates from an external source. The material has been completely permeated in swatch three. There is an indication that the pH is more acidic than the control. Some of this protein and natural oil may have suffered some degradation. Very small amounts of individual particulates consist of materials one would expect to find on a dress which was hung in the closet for four decades, i.e. 
house dust, pet hair, assorted natural synthetic clothing fibers. But the outer fabric, outer fabric, the lining, is also identified as cellulose acetate. However, it's woven. The lining is not discovered, discolored, but has a few stains. The fiber in the stain area has not suffered damage. The stain material appears to be almost permeated to the lining, though there is slightly more on the side facing the outer fabric. The stain contains, in part, components found in the exterior fabric. These are the most water-soluble proteins in a trace ester-type oil, uh, natural ester-type oil. This suggests that the stain is a result of bleed-through of some of the material from the outer fabric. It also indicates moisture had been originally present in the substance. No higher molecular weight insoluble protein is present. Thus, the outer dress fabric apparently served as a filter for the, eh, it keeps going on, for the oils, basically. Uh, it rules out any natural substances originating from Betty, such as urine, perspiration, and vomit. The material came from an external source ruling out urine and Betty's perspiration. Also, no uric acid was detected further eliminating urine. Vomit was easily eliminated because of the location of the discoloration, which occurs behind the dress and on the other arms, etc. I would expect the considerable solids deposited on the front of the dress, only microscopic debris typical of a dress which has been hung, uncovered in the closet for a long period of time, were detected. Basically. Oh, and significant amounts of carbohydrates were present as well. There was no bad odor, no bad smell. Indeterminate substances. All of that. I could have just said, you know, I know what the finding was? Indeterminate substances. But it was such a lengthy thing, I had to read you some of it. They don't know to this day. After five independent laboratories have conducted chemical and forensics analysis, nobody knows what was on that dress. All right, so back to the hills. They go outside that day after they wake up and they notice shiny concentric circles on their car's trunk that had not been there before. Remember when I said it seemed like the sound was hitting the trunk, basically permeating the trunk? Well, it seemed it was. Betty and Barney experimented with a compass, noting that when they moved it close to the spots, the needle would whirl rapidly, but when they moved it a few inches away from the shiny spots, it would drop down. Basically, they didn't know what they were dealing with. It was 1961. Who can help them? So, Betty reports it to the Pease Air Force Base, and then she checks out a book about UFOs from the local library. She actually wrote to the author of the book, and they referred them to Walter Webb, who was local. So Webb met with them, and after a six-hour interview, he said, quote, They were telling the truth, and the incident probably occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observation where human judgment is involved. Examples, exact time, length of visit, apparent size of objects and occupants, distance, height of objects, etc., so he met with them, and he says, you need to have hypnotic regression, and it needs to be performed by a psychiatrist that he knew. So they do that. They go through the, the hypnotic regression. I'm not going to go through all of that because it's very lengthy. I'm going to kind of skip around a little bit more now. Uh, Ten days after the incident, Betty was having vivid dreams like she and Barty, Barney encountering a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness but struggled to regain it. Then she realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night and of seeing Barney walking behind her, though when she called to him, he seemed to be in a trance or sleepwalking. The men stood about five to five and a half, five to five feet, four inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human with black hair, dark eyes, prominent nose, and bluish lips. Their skin was a grayish color. Another dream she had, a new man, similar to the others, entered to conduct her, uh, conduct her exam with the leader. Now, Betty called this new man, quote, the examiner, obvious reasons, and said that he had a pleasant, calm manner. The leader and the examiner spoke to her in English. The examiner's commands of the language seemed imperfect, though, she noticed, and he had, uh, she, said she sometimes had difficulty in understanding him, basically. So the examiner tries to tell her that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the UFO people, the aliens. So he seats her on a chair. A bright light was showing on her. The man cut off a lock of Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. After examining her legs and feet, the man used a dull knife similar to a letter opener to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled cellophane. He then tested her nervous system, 
and he thrust the needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain, whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. The examiner left the room and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. She picks up a book with a row of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked where he came from, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. Now, she and, ben, she and Barney were then taken to their car, and the leader suggested that they wait to watch the craft's departure. So they did. They watched it. But as they're being walked out, they, the, the leader and another person on board, another alien, get into like an argument. The leader then says, I'm sorry, you can't keep the book that they have decided the other men did not want her to even remember the encounter. Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events, though. Like I say, the story just keeps going on and on and on. It's a phenomenal story. Uh, Betty drew star maps that she shouldn't have known about. There's no way that a woman of you know from 1961, even though she was highly intelligent, she should know about these star maps. In 1968, Marjorie Fish... Um, read a book about the star maps. And uh, she said, you know what? I'm an amateur astronomer. She was, she was intrigued by the star map. So she was wondering if she might be able to decipher them to determine which star system the UFO came from. So she takes a look at Betty's star map, assuming that one of the 15 stars in the map must re represent Earth's sun. She constructs a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars that Goldilocks kind of star thing where they might have a, you know, a habitable planet. And she uses thread and beads. Uh, she discovers, like she says, yeah, I think I know what the star system is. So she publishes her results. 1969, they say, two other people say, yes, what you have done is correct. And it does seem that Betty's star map details in a, a specific star. And uh, it's crazy, but they said that the, the star system that the UFO came from was Zeta Reticuli, which is about 39 light years from Earth. Zeta Reticuli. There's no reason that Betty should ever known about Zeta Reticuli. I couldn't pick it out in a star map. I couldn't draw a star map right, for, right now from, from 2021 or 2022 even. It's 2022, Kurt. Jesus. From 2022, I couldn't draw a star map of Zeta Reticuli, but yet in 1961, Betty did. Uh, like I said, their, their hypnotic regression sessions, they're intense. They're well worth a read. But for this idea, or for this episode, you get the idea of what's going on. So let's move on to the marker part of it. So in Lincoln, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Department of Historical Resources installed a marker on Route 3 in Lincoln, New Hampshire, near the northern end of the property, property of Indian Head Resort. The marker commemorates the Betty and Barney Hill UFO incident. It says it's the first widely reported UFO abduction in the United States. Now, this marker is just across from Cottage Number 20 at Indian Head Resort, which is the last property that the Hills remember before experiencing, quote, a period of lost time. And uh, so there you go. Also, if you want to see stuff from Betty and Barney Hill, it seems like it's still going on. I haven't found that it's closed. Over at the University of New Hampshire, which is um, their alma mater, basically, there is an exhibition of Betty and Barney Hill's stuff, including the dress, Betty's dress. Uh it sounds amazing. I really want to go and check it out. And they have the drawings, the actual drawings that they did, the star map. I mean, it's got everything. If it's still going on and I can't find anything that says it's not, there you go. University of New Hampshire. All righty, let's keep on keeping on to the first honorable mention on this episode. Now, they never actually had any real UFOs that landed here, but if you were alive in 1938, you would have thought that UFOs landed here. Where is it? Well, it's Grover Mills, New Jersey, because on October 30th, 1938, Orson Welles basically scared the shit out of the entire world with the radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. He chose Grover Mills as the landing site for the Martians, and get this, when it aired in October 30th, 1938, the locals of Grover Mills were so scared 
they actually shot at a water tower that they thought was a UFO. But today, a monument stands in Van Next Park, where the Martians supposedly first touched down, that commemorates the UFO landing. All right, another quick one. It's another honorable mention just because I love roadside attractions. You know, like the, uh, you know, like the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota, those kind of things. This one, though, has a theme to match this episode. It's in Bowman, South Carolina, and it's the UFO Welcome Center. Now, if you're expecting a shiny monument, no, no, no. This one is not for you. It looks like the kind of place you go to be killed in some elaborate saw-like UFO examination kind of way. Uh, it was built by a guy named Jody Pendarvis. It's his homemade UFO welcome center. It's set up behind a wooden fence. Uh, it's made out of scrap wood, metal. Look, it basically looks like a junkyard version of two silver UFOs stacked on top of each other with the larger one at the bottom. And I'm talking real junkyard scrap kind of a thing. Like you could get tetanus from looking at it, that kind of a thing. It's going to fall down when you step in, but it doesn't. Um, the lower one has air conditioning, a toilet, a shower, and it probably has Jody living in it since he says the AC in the UFO is better than the trailer he lives in, which is right by that. Now, the smaller UFO rests on top of the other with no connecting bolts because Jody says he wants to allow it to be moved easier by alien technology. Sure. Why not? Uh, you're allowed to tour the UFO Welcome Center if you can find Jody and pay whatever he decides to charge that day. But I'm just going to say, safety not guaranteed. It seems kind of on the sketchy thing from all of the reviews, the few reviews I can find of people that actually went in there and then came out to tell their story. But I kind of want to do an episode from it. It's kind of crazy in all the right ways. <laughs> so if you, you know, don't fear, or if you don't like, if, if you're not afraid of death, let me put it that way. If you're not afraid of death, you're near Bowman, South Carolina, Get a photo in front of the UFO Welcome Center, uh, but it's not my fault if something happens to you. All right. Two very brief mentions, honorable mentions that had to be mentioned. I was going to mention them both in the first edition, but I decided to wait till this edition. The first one, the penultimate one on this episode, the statue with buns of steel. That's right, the Mothman statue in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. If you don't know what it is, this is a 12-foot-tall Mothman statue. And I got to tell you, it's just as good from the back as it is from the front. This thing's got an ass like J-Lo. We'll not quit. Um, if you're driving through West Virginia, it's located in downtown Point Pleasant between the Mothman Museum and the Coffee Grinder where you can get Mothman snacks and drinks. You got to go to it. If you're anywhere near the area, if you're if you're just touching West Virginia, you make the you divert your course and you drive to Point Pleasant and you get a photo with the Mothman statue's ass. It's amazing, I tell you. That is an ass that everybody that works out, you know, dies for kind of a thing. Yeah, anyhow. It's Mothman statue. Go just go see it. All right, but the granddaddy of them all, the, the, the last one on this list, the last honorable mention, because it's the whole freaking town, is, of course, Roswell. That's right. It's not a sign. It's not a statue. It's the entire town. You can't step foot in the town of Roswell without seeing something related to the most well-known UFO crash in the world. The entire town is done up as the best tourist trap for UFO nuts like me and you and everybody that you know. If you haven't gone, you gotta go. You have to go. There are other honorable mentions like the Alien in Area 51. That's fantastic. I highly recommend that one as well. The, I don't, you know what? I don't really care about the Area 51 government sign that says like restricted. That's not as exciting as the Alien in my opinion, but, uh, you know, if you're driving through the desert, 
you got to go to Area 51. If you're driving through the Southwest, you got to go to Roswell. Just like if you're driving through West Virginia, you got to go to Point Pleasant. It's just, it's like a rite of passage. Well, that about does it for this week's episode. Uh, hope you guys like these ones because I really liked them. They're some phenomenal stories. I mean, there really are. And uh, some cool markers, some cool commemorations. If uh, if I didn't talk about one that you know of, one that's in your area, or one that you've been to, or just one that you've always wanted to you know go to, send it to me. And it doesn't have to be just UFOs. It can be ghost markers or whatever, paranormal markers of any kind, like the Kecksburg Bell. I know there's a Kecksburg Bell in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Um, I did an episode about the Kecksburg Bell. There is a, like a statue of a Kecksburg Bell that's there. Um, so there's a lot of them out there. Like I said, more than I thought there were going to be. I really was surprised. When I thought of, when I said, you know, like, I want to do this episode, I thought I was going to get 10. And it was going to be a good 10 episode, but nope. There are a ton of them. Don't be surprised if a couple more pop up here or there. Uh, because they will, because I've gotten more. There's m- even more that I haven't talked about yet. But that about does it for this week's episode. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Samig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Um, and I say, like, I sh-